Welcome to the West Bridgewater Literary Podcast. Today I'm speaking again to my daughter Gretchen Snow and Beth Newman about one of her many literary passions, which is the amazingly long and never-ending series called Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Welcome, Gretchen. Welcome back. Thanks, Mom. It's good to be here. Yeah. You're, you've got so many interesting um, literary um, deep dives that I thought it would be fun to have you back again. <laughs> I think very hard about uh, my non-literary books. It's great. <laughs> Well, you read a range, let's just be honest. I do, I do. And, one of, and I, I would say that one of your reasons for reading is escapism, right? Just oh, absolutely. Life is exhausting. Do you want to start there? Sure. So I think that one of the things that I love about reading and literature, and in particular, you know, genre fiction, is is the escapism. You know, it's not tied to the real world. And I've always read genre fiction, but it became really important to me when I was uh, a medical student and a medical resident. And I was really staring in the face of a lot of suffering every day. And so I needed books that would allow me to not worry about the characters. And so literary fiction, often you're investing in these people who seem very real. And I didn't have that bandwidth at the time. And so I, I really doubled down on my love of genre fiction, my love of fantasy, and really, you know, deep escapist reading. And Outlander is great for that. Mm -hmm. um, it is considered genre bending. It combines a lot of different genres. It's romance, it's fantasy, it's um, historical fiction, a lot. There's a lot going on. Um, and in nearly a thousand pages per book, and I can't remember how many books right now, many books. Yes. There's a lot of space for a lot to go on. So I had, I had come across, Outland, the first Outlander book was published in the early 90s. Right, 1990s. And I had come across it when I was a teenager and in my highfalutin literary uh, world was like, oh, no, no, not for me. I am way too classy for this. And then I re-came across it um, maybe four or five years ago and was like, eh, whatever. It was available on Kindle and it just, you know, with my, with my Libby app and e-reader, the activation energy to just try something, even if it doesn't work is so low that I was like, no, we'll see. Well, a thousand pages later, I was like, where's the next book? Riveted. Um, you know, I'll say a large part of that is she writes in her, she plots incredibly well. Yeah. Um, and so you're constantly turning, what's next, what's next, what's next? Um, but as I was reading this and as I got more and more into um, Regency romances and the kind of like world of romance, this question kept nagging at me. So Outlander does a really good job of talking about the lead up to um, Prince Charlie and the Battle of Culloden and the Highland Clearances and the aftermath of that. And one of the things that um, Gabaldon does really well is really talks about the devastation that in the Scottish Highlands that happened after um, the Battle of Culloden and the, the real breaking of the Highland culture. Yeah. And so I was reading this, which I then was like, okay, well, let's not take let's not take genre fiction as our our 
are determinant of, of what actually happened in history, a pet peeve of all historical fiction writers and history majors everywhere. <laughs> I did a very brief peruse around. Turns out actually true. Highland clearances, breaking of the Highland culture was a real thing that happened. And then I started seeing all of these romance novels that featured Scottish Highlanders. <laughs> and growing up in southeastern Massachusetts, Scottish culture is not that prevalent, but Irish culture is everywhere. Right. And so I, you know, I had this kind of nagging sense of like, why are we, why are Scottish Highlanders viewed as this, you know, appropriate warrior class sex symbol when they completely lost? It's the but, hero, isn't it? Well, but even without that aspect of it, like, yes, an outlander it is, but most of most romance novels that deal with Scottish Highlanders happen way before the Battle of Culloden in the, the 1750s. But Irish men are also Celtic culture, also, you know, all of this other, st- you know, have a lot of the same cultural attributes, but, and in fact, fought a successful war for independence against the British Empire, but are not. After centuries of domination, of course. After centuries of domination, but Scotland was dominated too, and more, much more recent, still hasn't broken away. And I was like, how did this happen? How did this, how did we have Irish people who are, Irishmen are not really considered appropriate heroes for, uh, for genre romance fiction, but Scottish Highlanders are, even though there's a ton of cultural overlap here. Yeah. And both cultures are venerated. I don't know. I, I didn't get it. So I dug like, like every good, you know, lapsed history major. I was like, there's an answer to this. There's a sociologic answer to why this happened. And and then the tropes of the Scottish Highlander were really interesting to me, often portrayed as like slit as uncivilized, slightly savage, um, dangerous right those not really conforming to the rules of society right most scottish people that i have come across with are very normal right and so i dug okay and i dug and i found out that a our modern conception of what scottish highland culture was is actually a product of the victorian era was the first thing i found Mm -hmm. and I was like, the Victorian era? What the heck? And so Queen Victoria had gone to Balmoral, loved Scottish culture. You know, there was this huge, early in her reign, there was this huge, like, renaissance of everybody was wearing kilts. English people were wearing kilts. You start to get the formalization of all of these tartans for this and a tartan for that and a plaid for this and a plaid for that. Right. After Scottish Highland culture had been really decimated. Yeah. So you've squished it, and now you're going to revive it. The Victorians are really into heraldry. Yes. Everybody, everybody has, like, a, an emblem for their family. Exactly. And so then you have – and the Scottish Highland regiments are developed. And I was like, well, why are these Scottish Highland regiments developed? And so I dug again. And it turns out that it all has to do with the Napoleonic Wars and kelp. What? I know. This is my, my mother and my wife have been subjected to uh, Highlander Outlander studies by me so many times, but I think it's totally fascinating. It so, in the Napoleonic Wars, 
the British military lost its access to potash from Portugal. Uh, and potash is an essential element of early munitions. Okay. It's an essential element of creating gunpowder. Right. Okay. And so they had to come up with another option of how you create potash. And it, at the same time, you've moved a whole bunch of Scottish people off of subsistence farming into cities with the Highland clearances. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing that the coast of Scotland has a lot of, and that is seaweed and kelp. Mm -hmm. And now there was all of this city labor available. So you employ young men, men in their teens, 20s, 30s, et cetera, Mm -hmm. to harvest the kelp and then burn the kelp down to ash, creating potash, Mm -hmm. which is then used by the British empire as this major force of uh, major component of gunpowder during the Napoleonic Wars. Hmm. Well, then there's the end of the Napoleonic War. And suddenly they can get this higher quality potash from Portugal again. But because people have been making a wage, because they live in a city, because life is actually a little bit less dangerous, you've had this population boom in Scotland. And all of these now jobless young men are available. And so what does the Victorian era do? They say, ah, yes, we have an empire. And do you know what our empire needs? Our empire needs soldiers. And so as a method of recruitment, Uh there is this wealth of people, newly unemployed, who can't go back to being subsistence farmers because all that land has been taken over by sheep. (laughs) And very, very literally been taken over by sheep. And And so they pull these highland regiments in with the mis- with the imagery of returning to their warrior past ah, with the bagpipes and everything with the bagpipes with the tartan which had been outlawed previously if you're in a highland regiment you can wear your tartan Ooh. there's all these benefits and you can make a cash money wage which yeah. is really important important so all of these things conspire in the early 1800s to create the myth of the Highland warrior that we are the inheritors of. Hmm. And so regardless of what life was actually like pre-Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Battle of Culloden, our remembered, our collectively remembered history is really developed in the Victorian era as a result of the kelp farming collapse that followed the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Wild. That's such a crazy. Wow. And so I think, and that myth that was created then has carried forward now into modern day genre fiction <laughs> where we see, you know, this kind of hyper military, very um, edgy to use one of your favorite words, mom, very edgy, um, not quite civilized myth of Scottish Highlanders. That is really how they really based in how they got young Scottish men to leave the safety of Scotland and go and fight Queen Victoria's battles abroad. Uh And watching some of the episodes of Highlander, there's also, it seems to me that there's sort of an underlying, and tell me if this is just the movie and not the book, but there seems to be sort of an underlying obsession of the English soldiers about the Scottish men. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's definitely is a hundred percent in the book. Hundred percent. 
Um, I don't know where that comes from. I think that it really falls into this, this idea of, you know, that comes with a lot of these um, romance novels written about Highlanders where you see the English as a feat. Right. Um, And something slightly suspect around that. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of gay panic uh, in the, the Outlander books that, you know, we can talk, that's a whole separate issue (laughs) we can talk about in detail. Um, but yeah, but I think that there's the, and, and then there's the, the concept of like a man so manly, even other men want him. Right. Um, that was a whole trope. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, that America, I think it's mostly Americans. I can't speak to the, the British consciousness, but in America, we, we set the, we set the the Scottish Highlander up as this noble, defeated, lost cause right. um, story versus the effete English. When I think that that's you know not only ahistorical, but we can trace its roots really specifically yeah. to a kind of um, a cynical playing on a lost cause narrative mm-hmm. um, that the British Empire used to get soldiers. Yeah, that's so that's fascinating. Wow. I'll have to dig around a little bit more in that and see what I can find, too. Yeah. Now, then, the other thing is with Claire, she mm-hmm. lives half in, um, you know, the 1950s, 60s, and half um, her time in 18th century Scotland. She becomes like a surgeon in in Boston. You know, so yeah. she, she um, realizes her pro- professional ambitions, even though her marriage is, you know, shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she ends up going back to be with Jamie. Her, and first, her true love. Her true, her, her one and only real, real uh, love. But um, that just seems kind of like she kind of gets to have it both ways. She gets to be. And who doesn't want to have it both ways? <laughs> that's quite, but that's part of the whole, uh, isn't that kind of hard, part of the whole mythology of romance too? Is like the woman is in charge, but not in charge. You know, she wants to be. Yeah, I think, you know, that's really a, an important element of modern romance. I think if you go back 30 years, that's less important. Uh-huh. You know, I think romance novels serve to, like spy novels are most, are, are kind of a stereotypically male wish fulfillment. Romance novels are stereotypically female wish fulfillment. And so the things that, that we're all fighting for, I want to be both professional and in charge, but also not have to be in charge 100% of the time. Right. Are definitely played out there. So, I mean, Outlander is really a modern, you know, oh, yeah. modern. I mean, all historic romance novels are really actually a modern retrojection. But, like you said last time, that they they tend they tend to they tend to mirror the societal wish fulfillment of the times that they're being written in. Absolutely. One of the things that I like about Outlander is that her is that Claire is really torn, and is facing a, I think like many of us in our lives face a decision between two good options rather than clear cut choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she lives with her modern husband for, I don't know, 20 years yeah. and makes that marriage work as best she can. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a lot of people, that's the reality of their lives. Mm-hmm. You're making your marriage work as best you can. Mm-hmm. And, so people it's can not perfect. Yeah. They but it is your life. And right. and I, I appreciate the fact that 
like a lot of women that I know, you know, I'm, I'm not yet 40, but even like a lot of women I know, the cost of leaving her modern husband is too high. And so she's choosing between a not wildly romantically fulfilling marriage, but a pretty good mm-hmm. teen parent. You know, he's a, her, her modern husband, Frank, is a very good co-parent mm-hmm. who's not a bad person in any way, shape or form but they're just not wildly in love yeah. and they co-parent. And then when their daughter is an adult, they get, you know, he wants a divorce and, and that's, even though she's not wildly in love with him, that's still kind of shattering to her. Yeah. Then he conveniently dies in a car crash. I mean, let's be real. This is a novel. So let's <laughs> just kill him off. He's becoming convenient. His right. purpose is fulfilled. Right. Off we go to the next thing. I think that those kinds of things are things that, um, Gabaldon does really well. There's other things she deals with really poorly, but given the volume of things that she, the the just sheer number of issues she touches on in the like 9,000 some odd pages that she's written, <laughs> not all will be well. I think she does race very, very poorly, both in the modern era and in the, in the 18th century. What do you think the point of having it be a time travel is? Like, why, why didn't she just write a, a genre fiction about the 18th century Scots? You know, she's been interviewed about this a ton. And what she says is that she intended to write a straight historical fiction romance novel. Oh. And she, there was this modern character that kept coming in that she kept writing. Oh. And her intention was, oh, I'll write this and then I'll write her out. And she could never write her out. Oh. So it's not purposeful. I don't think that there's like a specific intention there. I think that what it allows her to do is, first of all, time travel is fun. <laughs> it allows for a ton of world building. Right. But also, I think that it allows her to set up the strangeness of the historical period. And so you you don't just march through and accept and accept and accept. So I trained under uh, a very, very eminent cardiologist, Nanette Wenger, who went to medical school in the 1950s and became a cardiologist in the 1960s. She invented the field of women's cardiology and the idea that women are separate from men. And she is still in practice. I mean, why women are separate from men. So that, that, um, there's a lot of data that, that women experience cardiovascular disease, um, at di- with different timing and with slightly different risk factors than men. And she is the one who in the 1970s and 80s said, we cannot simply say that women are men with slightly different anatomy. They actually need to be studied and be part of research studies. Mm-hmm. And this was an incredibly important piece of work. But when I think back to, when I read Outlander, And particularly the parts where Claire is going to medical school and the incredible sexism that she experiences. I think about Nanette Wenger, who's, you know, she's five foot tall and a hundred pounds soaking wet, this tiny little Jewish woman who's still in practice today. Mm. Um, And the absolute iron will it must have taken her to both parent her children and be young faculty in cardiology. Wow. Um, And I think that, you know, I, I don't know that Nanette Wenger has ever re- read or ever will read Outlander or, or cares about it in the slightest. But I think that one of the things that I appreciate about Gabaldon as a woman who is in medicine is the fact that she doesn't erase the fact that Claire 
with a ton of effort could be a physician in the 1950s. I think that we assumed that that was a that that was closed, but it, it wasn't. There were female, there were women physicians at the time who mm-hmm. fought really, really hard. And I think that Claire's um, Claire's sense of her professional identity and really com- strong commitment to her professional identity is also really important to me as a as a female doctor, as a female physician who you know sexism is not gone, but you know my whole life is really centered around my professional identity. I'm someone who, who works really hard and loves my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to read about, you know, characters who also do that, who are also really committed to their work and their professional identities is really validating. Mm -hmm. Um, We can talk about the terrifying and inaccurate science in a lot of these outlander books that hurt my heart as an infectious disease doctor, but that's a that's a real side issue, I think, to the strength of this, which is the idea that you know women, that professional women were not invented in the the nineteen the late nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, right. well, your generation was not the first. There were trailblazers that came before. There were. What do you think is the appeal? I mean, you're speaking as an American professional woman, but um, I'm noticing that the books have been published in twenty six countries and twenty three languages. So there's some sort of universal appeal of Outlander. I mean, who doesn't love a good romantic story with steamy sex scenes? (laughs) You know, I don't know that we, I don't know that needs to be all that deep. Yeah. They're fun. There's a lot of pages. Right. You know, this is what we learned with Harry Potter and have been for a long time is that, you know, people want, if they like the world that you've created in your book, they want to stay. Right. Right. The number of pages, you know, people want a long book. They people don't love a long book. People don't want to get over with, get it over with too soon. No. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Now there's a lot of fanfic, I guess, written on as, as takeoffs of Outlander as well. And yeah, so, and Diana Gabaldone has written some of it herself. Really? She's, She's also a whole series of novellas about side characters. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. And that's the other thing about a big uh, sweeping epic like this, that it, it really does allow readers and fans to participate in some ways that yeah. are, really make it almost interactive more than just the passivity of reading a book. So that's kind of a fun part of it, too. Sim- like you say, similar to, to Harry Potter. Yeah, and I think that a lot of this is fairly... I, I, I don't exist in the fan fiction world by any stretch of the imagination, but my knowledge of fan fiction as like a big thing that would sustain interest in a series really did start with Harry Potter. And I wonder if we're see we see it more for, you know, Outlander has been written now for 30 years. I wonder if with the rise of the, of the modern internet and all of that stuff, as people can share and write and do all of this, you know, slant, I think it's called slant. I don't really know what it's called. Yeah. All of these side projects. If we, if we just see more of it. Yeah. I don't know. I think so. I think it makes it, um, I mean, the internet really helps make um, literature have the potential of being interactive. Not, you know, not not for everyone, obviously. But um, I think that it's that sense of the ability to be interactive, you know, adds another level of appeal to it, too. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you want to mention before we close out here, Gretchen, about Outlander? I will say this. The last thing I'll mention is about the TV series that I think starts strong and ends with inspired by Outlander. So if you find the, if you find the latter seasons of the television show 
uh, slightly eyebrow raising, I would say the books are better. They're not as, you know, like any, like any author, there are some that are better than others. Right. Um, but the plot is a little bit more cohesive in the books is what uh-huh. I'll say. There's a similarity there with um, Game of Thrones, I think, which starts off really strong and I think ended up just kind of spinning out of spinning out of control. Although I know others who disagree with me completely. So, yeah, yeah, I it's very tight. But gotta say, not a Game of Thrones fan, so I don't. I don't know. There's it's a similar kind of thing in terms of an, being an an event. That people, uh, you know, participate. Oh yeah. Well, thanks so much for all your insights, Gretchen. This has really been fun. Always happy to share my 3 (laughs) a.m. internet deep dives. So until next time, happy reading, everyone. And we'll talk again another time. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.